What's up, Coop? How we doing, Zach? I'm doing good. Zach, I got a question for you. Okay. What do you want to be when you grow up? Well, Coop, you sound like just about everyone I've talked to the past couple weeks. Me as well, Zach. You know, we're seniors in college, and it's time for us to start figuring out what the answer to that question is. The next step is becoming real. And I think we've always had what we really want to be in the back of our mind, but I think it's time to, to make it a reality. I think so, too. If you want to tell the people the story? Yeah, a little backstory. Two years ago, we're sophomores at DBU, not a care in the world about what we do in the future. We're watching the Dallas Cowboys in our apartment. Go Cowboys. And the commercials come on. And Zach, we both know this, but I'm a commercial guy. You are. You get sucked in. When the commercials start, the world around me stops and I'm locked in on whatever's happening. It's it's not even something I can really control at this point. Right. And on this particular day, there was a, a specific commercial that really struck a chord in us. Yeah. And we watched I mean, even it. you were locked in on this I know. And normally I'm not. Right. Because I'd rather watch the game. Right. But we're watching this commercial, and there's two guys in it, and we look at each other, and we're like, dude, that could be us. That's what we want to do for the rest of our lives. So who is it? Who's yeah. in this commercial? Their names are Peter Graz and TJ Jagodowski. And based off the name, you don't know who they are. No. And that's what we love about it. Exactly. You don't know their names, but you know, know their face. The Sonic, Sonic guys. guys. They sit in a car, and they try out Sonic's new products, and they're funny. They're so funny. They have they have an incredible life. That right. probably isn't even their full-time job. Yeah, and you think Peter and TJ, they're walking down the road just going to Dairy Queen. They probably wouldn't be going to Dairy they Queen because they would be going to Sonic. Right. But it's like no one's like the paparazzi's not following right. they're them. not getting flooded. No one cares about the, no. the the deep dark secrets of their life. No one knows their name, but they know their work and they're funny. Yeah, they've blessed millions of people right and so we're looking at their work we're watching the commercials even the other day we saw them and we're like they're getting old yeah they've been doing this for a while they're not doing bad no they're doing a great job yeah they're still hilarious but it's in your prime when you need to start training up who's going to replace you exactly that's a leadership lesson for hey, you come on so peter tj sonic we're here we're here coop and zach zach and coop however you want to spin it we're, we want to put our names in the hat. This is us putting our names in the proverbial hat. So if you know Sonic anybody, commercial guys. if you know anybody that works with Sonic, not just your regular Sonic, not a, right. not, not just someone that skates around and gives you your phone. Right. But well, we you, thank you for your service. Yes, you're amazing as well. I, I love Sonic. We love Sonic. I love Sonic. But if anybody higher up in Sonic, if they know Peter and TJ, just, just give them a little shout. Say Zach and Cooper are interested. And we want to join the team. And we don't know that there's a lot of competition. We haven't heard anyone else talking about this. This isn't something we talk about with many people. Right, either. because we want to keep it pretty under wraps. But now that we can publish this, we will have our claim on it. Yeah. So, shout out Peter and TJ. If there's ever a chance, we want to be your replacements. All right. Welcome to the Next Generation Leader Podcast, where we believe that great leaders are listeners, especially during their youth. Good leaders learn from their successes and mistakes, but great leaders learn from the successes and mistakes of those who go before them. I'm your host, Zach Funderberg, here with my co-host, Cooper McCullough. It's me, Zach. We're not in a Sonic Studio set yet, but hopefully one day. For now, we're just in the studio. Just in our, our little studio. Our um, humble abode. Our humble abode where we also live. But Coop, I'm excited for today's interview. Yeah, who are, we, who are we hearing from? So a few weeks ago, I was sitting at work and part of my job is I get to read the newspaper, which is pretty Riveting. fun. I've, I know it sounds boring, but I've learned a lot. From no, absolutely. It. It's, it's been I really good. That. But I, I stumbled across this article about an SMU professor. Her name is Dr. Jill DeTemple. And as I read the article, I'm like, wow, this lady is really interesting. And her work with her students is really good. And I think people outside of that classroom need to know about it. So I 
I shoot her an email and of course she responds with, of course, I would love to help out. So got to go out to her office a few days ago and, and just have a discussion with her. So today we're talking to Dr. Jill, the temple, an associate professor of religious studies at Southern Methodist university SMU here in Dallas, Texas pony up. Uh, but here's the crazy part. She got her master's from Harvard Divinity School. Wow. Okay, but it doesn't stop there. Okay. She got her PhD from North Carolina Chapel Hill. So all that to say. Intimidating. Yes. And she knows what she's talking about. Good. So I walk into her office and I look up and behind her desk where she's sitting is just books galore. And I know as soon as I start talking to her, she's read every one. Right. You can tell pretty quickly just the words she's using. Yes. She's one of those people I'm talking to. I'm like, wow, I'm just realizing how much I don't know. You are inferior. And like why I started this podcast is because I'm I get to talk to people like you and learn from you. Um, So what we're talking about is called the reflective structured dialogue. Mm. It's what her and a couple people have developed. And it's really it's used. uh, The format is used in a classroom. Um, But once we talk about it, we I began to realize that this can be used anywhere and people need to know this and they need to apply it to hot topics. Um, An example that she uses is cat videos. So a lot of times people will have an argument that that they are willing to die on, die on the hill of cat videos are the best thing on the Internet. And so whenever I am debating you about this, Cooper, because you think in her example, chameleon videos are the best videos on the Internet. I no longer see you as Cooper McCullough, the Dallas Baptist University student, the biblical studies major. I see you as Cooper, the chameleon video guy, and I'm going to dehumanize you because I disagree with you. And so what her structure allows is a space for students to learn to slow those arguments down and to say, hey, I realize that you're a human being, that you're a real person and that we are arguing a material matter and that I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to attentively listen to you and be uh, genuinely curious to what you're saying. And so that we can come to a conclusion and we may not, we may not decide if cat videos or chameleon videos are the best on the internet, but we'll quit dehumanizing each other. Yeah. It sounds like, obviously that seems like a silly analogy, but I could see how that would scale so well to big ticket items such as abortion and how that might scale yeah. of learning to take time to realize that you are speaking with a human being right. that has a, might have a contradictory view to what you have, but understanding that and they go home, they have a job, they have a family. All of these things are true of them. And they're not just someone who disagrees with you, but there's much more to that person. Yeah. Another thing we talked about that was convicting to me was reacting versus reflecting. Mm. And a lot of times when we're in a discussion with somebody that we respond with our first reaction. And so the first thought that pops into our head is the first thing that comes out of our mouth. Yeah. And the study shows that the third, fourth, fifth thing in our mind is much more loving. It's much smarter. It's much more educated than the first thing that comes to our mind. Mm. So she wants to allow people to learn how to just think and to allow those, those thoughts to be what comes out of your mouth and not to just react to, um, in an emotional sense, what somebody says and how that might offend you. So I'm excited for this interview. Yeah, I'm excited as well. She's brilliant. I hope you listen and and apply because I think this is something that really could shape our future. Yeah, she sounds like a professor that wants to prepare her students well, and I'm excited to hear from her. Yeah, she's awesome. Well, this is my interview with Dr. Jill DeTemple. Well, Dr. Temple, thank you so much for, for being with us and being on. Today, I want to just talk about how to turn topical disruptions into meaningful and useful dialogue. So I first want to start by just letting you introduce yourself. Um, you are a professor here at SMU. How long have you been here? Is, has teaching always been the dream, what you wanted to do with, with your degrees, or is this where you ended up? 
Yeah, great. So I have been at SMU since 2005. It was my first job after obtaining my PhD. And has teaching always been my dream? You know, I don't know if it would a dream, but I come from a family of teachers. It's the family profession. Uh, my dad is a math professor. My mom taught uh, music. So she was a private violin teacher, the Suzuki method, and my sister is a high school English teacher. Wow. So this is the family profession. Yeah. Um, so I feel rather unoriginal, actually, um, about what I do, but I do feel a calling to it. Okay. Uh, this is, I, classrooms are where I belong. Gotcha. So really just interacting with students. And, and really what we want to talk about is based off an article that you wrote um, based on the reflective structured dialogue and an article I happened to stumble upon. And then reach out to you. And so thank you for, for meeting with us. But I want to start with what is reflective structured dialogue? How does it work? Where did it come from? And how do you apply it, one, to your classroom? And how can we apply it to leadership? Great. I'm, I'm going to flip the order of that question just okay. a little bit because I want to talk about where reflective structured dialogue comes from and then give you sort of a sense of how it works and then okay. how we would use it in classrooms. So reflective structured dialogue comes from the work of a nonprofit called Essential Partners, and they're based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And that work started in 1989 when some family therapists were watching the fallout after abortion clinic shootings there. Mm -hmm. So the discourse had really gone badly uh, around abortion because, of course, people feel very strongly on both sides of that issue. And somebody got so upset they went and shot somebody, mm -hmm. uh, and more than once, actually. And then when they were watching the public discourse after that event, they realized that what they were seeing and people talking over each other, people not listening to each other, looked like something they would characterize as a stuck conversation. So you might have those in your own life, right? You could think right. about political issues or something in your family where everybody knows what everybody else is going to say. You could have the whole conversation in your head. And it's not moving anybody anywhere. Right. You just have that massive gulf. And so these therapists realized that that sort of dysfunction looked a lot like family dysfunction. They had seen it before. And so they got folks together in these secret meetings in this room in Cambridge somewhere uh -huh. and started to apply some of the techniques they had developed in family therapy and asked people to do that reflection. And they gave them a structure in which they could speak. And it did move the conversation. Um, it was no longer stuck. No one agreed at the end of the day, but they quit dehumanizing each other. Mm. Right? Um, they realized that we are fuller human beings because something we see in that kind of polarizing discourse is we have a tendency to reduce each other to just the issue. Right? So instead of you being, for example, a DBU student right. or you're from Branson or you're majoring in whatever you're majoring in, yeah. I would just see you as... You know, Zach the Republican or Zach right. the Democrat or, you know, and I couldn't remember all of those other things where perhaps I would connect with you. Mm. You know, maybe you love to camp or you make a really great cup of espresso, you know, right, whatever your right, thing is. Right. Um, so that's where it comes from. They started moving it out into uh, more public conversations. It was actually the nonprofit was originally called Public Conversations Project. And it was effective, and they're currently working all over the place in all kinds of uh, areas. So they'll work on issues of homosexuality in Christian congregations, for example, okay. um, Israel-Palestine, guns. Mm. Um, you know, people call them and say, hey, we're having trouble in our community. We're really divided over something. And again, the divide may, itself may not be the problem. It's the fact that we started dehumanizing each other over that divide. Mm. So uh, point number two, what reflective structure dialogue is – 
it's well named. Right. Uh, it looks exactly, you know. Yeah, it does. And feels exactly like the name. So it is reflective. Uh, what we've noticed is that uh, in those stock conversations, we tend to go to talking points very quickly. So we don't really think, we just react. Mm. Uh, because when we are confronted with a challenge to a worldview, our bodies don't know the difference between that and a physical threat. So if somebody comes at you with something that's counter to a worldview that you hold strongly, so maybe you think cat videos are the best thing on the internet, uh, and somebody comes at you with something that's like, no, chameleon videos are the best <laughs> thing on the internet, um, your body thinks you're actually going to be hit. Mm. Uh, and it triggers you into a defensive state in less than a second. And it's really hard for you to sort of relax back into a normal state. It usually takes us about 23 minutes. Wow. And so, again, one way we get into those triggered and difficult conversations is you're just reacting. Mm. You're, you're just being defensive because you feel as if somebody's threatening you. So the reflective part of reflective structured dialogue is that we ask you to take a deep breath and reflect. We'll give you a minute or two to sit back and think about all of your ideas about something mm. before we invite you to actually offer those ideas. And that can, you know, your first three or four Maybe seven or eight are all those defensive ideas sometimes. And then you'll get to something that might be a little more meaningful and maybe even more true for you. So then the structured part is we give people a structure in which to speak and to listen. So this involves timers. And it's one of the great things about modern day phones is we all have, we're walking around with timers. Um, and so that reflective part will ask people to reflect for 90 seconds or two minutes. And then we'll pass a timer around the circle we're sitting in. We want everyone to be able to see each other and then offer you that same amount of time to speak. And it is structured, no one else will speak in that time. Uh, so if you have a reaction to someone, especially if you have a question for someone, we'll invite you to write that down. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, it gives everybody equal time to speak and listen. And if that doesn't sound like a dialogue, that's because it isn't yet. Right. Um, the dialogic part happens in the last bit of these conversations, where again, we've asked you to write down the questions you'll have for somebody and we coach people into what is a curious question as opposed to a rhetorical question. And then that last bit of this thing is where people can start having a more open back and forth. So it may be that you said something really interesting when you were talking about values or when right. you were talking about an experience you had and I really wanted to know more. Well, that's the chance I can ask you about that. One of the quotes from the uh, article says, if done well, we create spaces where people are better able to speak openly, listen respectfully and, and attentively. So kind of speak into that as well. It sounds like this whole reflective structure dialogue is really just slowing down conflict. If we can take this issue and we discuss it, but we slow it down, it creates an easier environment to speak openly about it. Is that, is that kind of the case? I think you nailed it. That's okay. it. Um, one thing my students will talk about when they go into the dialogue circles, and they're super nervous before they do, uh, and skeptical of this whole process, right. because it goes counter to the way discourse happens. Right? So if you look especially at social media, it's really fast. It's mm -hmm. all reactive. Um, and even in classrooms, we generally you know you probably had a teacher call on you and just want you to respond right there in the right, center. Yeah. Uh, better thinking, we know, is slower thinking. Mm -hmm. So if we can have you take that pedagogical deep breath, Right? Maybe it's an actual deep breath. Yeah. Yes, it slows it down. And then the other thing students have commented on is in that slowdown, it creates a space to actually listen. And they talk really intelligently about the way this process has them focus on their listening skills. And that for me has also been something I've turned to and for some of my other 
partners in this work, we realized that what this does is start to teach listening as a skill. And the way we generally train people in academia is to teach writing and speaking as skills. Right. And we kind of forget that somebody needs to be listening to the writing and the speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the real gifts of this work is to allow students the space to really develop their listening skills. Right. And that for them has been incredibly meaningful. And that's kind of a basis of this podcast of wanting to listen to to leaders who have gone before, but also it applies to listening to people around you. And so I think that's a huge part of this. And the next point I want to talk about is the idea in the reflective structured dialogue and the difference between speaking to convince someone of your argument versus uh, speaking to be understood. So you can, can you kind of break that down? What does that look like to to really do that with someone? Yeah. So... Again, it's that defensiveness. Right. right. If you've just been hit with a some worldview that really goes counter to an experience you've had or a deeply held value, we often respond with those convincing questions, mm. right? Or a convincing statement. How could you possibly believe believe that? Right? That's not a genuine question. Right. right. You're making a rhetorical case. So that's where you get into those stuck conversations where you could just have the whole conversation by yourself. The questions that will help us move down the road towards humanizing someone else, towards really understanding something much more deeply, those are the curious questions. And so we do a lot of work, actually, before we even get people into these circles, practicing curious questions. So we have an exercise we call questions of persuasion, questions of understanding. Mm -hmm. And that was one that got documented in that Dallas Morning News piece a little bit, um, where we also train people to the timers with this thing. So I put a timer on for a minute. And there's person A and person B. And so person A will make a statement. And then person B, for the entire 60 seconds, needs to try to dissuade them that whatever person A said is wrong. Mm. And to do so with questions. Okay. So if person A, again, says something like cat videos are the best thing on the internet. Person B needs to come back with, well, how could you possibly think that? Or, but cats are, dis- you know, they're disasters. They tear up your home. How would mm. you, you know, and it just kind of keeps going. Timer goes off at 60 seconds. And then I give the instruction. Now I want you to ask curious questions for 60 seconds on the same topic. So person A will make the statement again. And then person B might come back with something like, you know, tell me about a cat video that was especially meaningful for you. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. Cat videos are sort of a silly example, right? Right. No, yeah. It could be that person A says something much more significant. Um, I believe every American should be armed or I believe no one should be armed or, you know, something that would actually yeah. pertain to current totally. U.S. policy. And that really trains you into the difference between those two things. If I've made you really try to do one or the other, or in this case, both, right? Okay. Uh, and then we come back to people and we said, well, what happened? What was different between the time you were trying to persuade and the time you were asking curious questions? Mm-hmm. And usually what people will say is, you know, I learned a lot more um, in the curious question one. I found myself listening when I was trying to persuade them everything they said. I was just trying to come back with some kind of new persuasive question. And all of my energy was going into what I was going to say next to the point where I couldn't even hear what they said. People talk about their heart rates being elevated when they're trying to persuade. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the sense of connection. They actually learned something about somebody else, even if it was over a ridiculous issue. Uh, That actually led them to be more curious. And they found themselves wanting to follow up. And they get a little ticked off when the timer goes off. And I tell them to be quiet again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And what's really interesting for me is in classrooms, once we've established that culture of curious questions, people just do it naturally. I have, we call it the curiosity engine is a term that we came up with, my my grant partners and I, on this stuff. I had a class a couple years ago when I realized about halfway through the semester, somebody would speak, 
usually actually for about 90 seconds, they get sort of trained into that little snippet of speech. Um, and then they just look at the class and say, so what do you think about that? And it would just kept building and building. And so I didn't have to tear information out of people in the way sometimes you've probably been on the receiving end of this. Nobody's speaking in class and the professors you just want somebody to say something. They were doing that work because they were genuinely curious about what everybody else in the room was thinking about whatever the issue was. Mm. Um, so for me, in terms of teaching, it's been really great to get students into material because they get natively curious about it. They're curious about each other. And that skill then can overlap when reading a book. Now I'm curious about what the author actually meant about this thing or why the author didn't use this other source or why something else was happening. So the other thing is this is really great teaching. Uh, my students are doing better in my classes. They're more likely to come to class. They feel a sense of belonging with each other. Uh, when I ask them at the end of class, talk about something you're leaving behind and something you're taking away. They talk about taking away friendships that they didn't think they could ever have because it's somebody who maybe is really different than they yeah. are. Uh, and again, it's it's been really great for them to feel a sense of connection both to other people and then open up to learning course content maybe they wouldn't have otherwise. That's amazing. And I think we live in a generation that is the most connected through social media, but is also the most anxious. And it's, we're worried about what people think and we're worried about people coming at our ideas. And I think if I'm in a conversation with someone I disagree with, I immediately go to that like attack mode or wanting to, to, to make sure you know you're wrong. So how within this structure do I listen and show genuine curiosity? Uh, is there physical ways or body language, voice inflection? Are there ways that I can show someone that I'm genuinely curious in what they're saying? You know, you know when somebody's curious about you. This is actually, we set up communication agreements uh, at the beginning of the semester, um, which will be the rules of the road right, for the course. And one thing we do to set up those agreements is to think about how do you know somebody's really listening to you? Mm -hmm. And that's when the posture comes up or somebody not interrupting you, somebody nodding just like you're doing now, right? right? Uh, we, you know when somebody's listening to you. And when somebody's listening respectfully and not just to cut you down. Mm. Um, so despite the social media atmosphere, which is everybody's fear, you know, you sort of know you've been trained up in some really dysfunctional discourse. Um, the fact is you do have friends and family and even strangers who have listened to you and you can emulate them. But to do that well, you do have to sort of name all the things you were just talking about. You don't turn your back. Mm. Uh, you're not on your phone. You're... Um, maybe nodding or acknowledging somebody said something. You ask for a clarification if you don't understand something they just said, right. and you can do that politely. You don't interrupt. And then something else we ask uh, people to do is listen with resilience. So, you know, I can almost guarantee that you're going to hear something with which you're going to disagree. What we ask you to do is listen all the way to the end of the paragraph. Mm. I, I don't just jump in. Right. And don't disengage. And this is one of the hardest things, I think, for folks to do. Um, but if you can continue listening, you're 90% of the way towards rehumanizing something and giving them the gift you can give, which is of your attention. I think listening also helps with the next point about reaction versus reflection. And a lot of times whenever we're in this argument, we respond with our first reaction, our gut reaction, how this made us feel. And then that in turn hurts someone. And then it's just, you've lost it there. So talk about in this structure, allowing people to get to their third, fifth, sixth thought rather than just responding with their first thought? Because this is something I struggle with and was convicted when I read it. And I'm really excited to hear your answer 
Because I do respond with that first thought. So can I explain that and talk about that? You know, I think you can get there through practice. And mm -hmm. what this structure allows is the practice. So if we're sitting down in those dialogue circles, you can't respond because if I'm facilitating and you want to just jump in there, I'm going to say, our agreement is that everybody's going to speak in turn. Hold that mm -hmm. until it's your time. Yeah. You know, and once you've done that a few times, I've noticed in my classes, people start holding it. You know, there's something they want to say, but they'll hold back until they're really sure that that's what they want to say. And that has really changed the pace of the course. You're sort of slowing it down that you were talking mm -hmm. about. And people do make, I think, smarter, more well-informed comments because they've just taken that breath. It's like, yeah, okay. I could see, you know, they might do the work to say, maybe I misunderstood, especially in your first sentence, where you're going with that. I'm going to listen to the end of the paragraph and to be sure I'm responding to what you actually meant. Mm -hmm. Because that's one thing that gets lost if you're going super fast in a conversation is intention and impact. Somebody's intention may not be the way you heard it, that impact. But the longer you give them to speak, the clearer you're going to be about their intended impact. Mm -hmm. And again, we're just creating a space where those two things can be better aligned. And that's going to lead to some better conversation. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm, the more you practice that, uh, I think the better we get at it. At least that's what I've seen in these classrooms. Yeah. So I have this gift. I've got people for 14 weeks of their life, right? 40-some uh, hours, right? right? Um, and that means that by the time they're done with that, they can really practice it. And what they report back is that they're much better at applying this with their friends and their boyfriends and girlfriends and their mm -hmm. parents. Crazy Uncle Herbert. Right. You know? Right. Well, I had somebody come up to me um, a little less than a year ago, I guess. And I thought we were going to talk about the upcoming final exam or something in office hours. And she just tapped me on the shoulder and she's like, I just wanted to thank you. Thanksgiving was so much better. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, she's polarized from her family, but she right. found herself able to not just react mm -hmm. and not just feel terrible around them. Yeah. She could pull it back, ask some good questions about where they were coming from. And it made that situation for her much more livable. Uh, and she loves them. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. What are some practical questions that... I or anyone listening can ask to allow yourself to reflect and think, what are some like good examples of questions to ask people to really dive into what they're thinking? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'm actually going to start with a principle and then go to the questions. Okay. So if you walk into the essential partners offices in Cambridge on their front wall, it says behind every belief is a person with a story. Mm. What's yours? If you can walk around <laughs> remembering that that's true. Right. So behind every belief is somebody who has a well-crafted and deeply felt sense of values. And they have those values probably because of places they've been and things that have happened to them. Mm. That can get you to that second level where you say, okay, even if this is coming at me in a way that I find to be really hard, maybe I should ask about that story. And I can sympathize with something in there, even if not with the conclusion. And I found that to be really helpful. You know, a neighbor will say something um, that I think would have really rubbed me the wrong way before I started doing all of this. And now I find I'm able to sort of back off and remember who they actually are and where they've been. And it makes more sense. Like the world just kind of falls into place a little mm -hmm. bit better. So that can lead you then to, you know, you're asking what questions would you ask? Right. Tell me a story. You know, say, so you know, that's really interesting. You could even signal that I don't see the world that way. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm really curious about why you do. Could you tell me a story that would help me understand how you came to hold this belief? And just listen to the story. It might have to do with their grandmother. 
And I think people are even drawn to stories and even getting to tell their own story. It allows people space to feel comfortable. So are you saying or would you say that stories are a way to connect with people? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. Okay, the last point I want to talk about on this structure is is wobble. Mm. And a point that you made in the in the article that you wrote and explain what wobble is, how it's helpful, and do we want it or do we want to avoid it? So I'm going to start with your last question. We want wobble. Okay. Wobble is how we grow. That's right. Um, yeah, and I made the analogy there to like being on a bike and sort of turning a corner or something. Or if right. you can remember learning to ride a bike, there was a lot of wobble. Oh, in so much. Yes. You know, um, because that's that edge of comfort mm. where you feel like you're maybe sort of in control, but something may happen that could push you over. You know, gravity is not quite so stable. But what we know about the way you learn uh, is that's actually how you learn. Right? You, you learn best when you're connecting a new idea with something you already know. So that's another place where stories are really helpful, I think. But in classrooms, we, we want students a little wobbly. We want to present them with something new that might be just a little destabilizing. Um, this is especially true if we're around controversial subjects. You know, if you always stayed in your safe bubble world, you probably haven't learned much uh, mm. in a classroom. But the question is, how can we utilize that wobble for growth and not send everybody just into retreat. Gotcha. Right. So there's useful wobble. Mm -hmm. um, that's where I might destabilize you a little with something. Uh, but that again, it's designed to help you grow and understand something, even if it's difficult. And that's, again, where students have come back um, and said, you know, I was not about this when you presented it. Mm -hmm. I was just doing it because I'm in the class. But at the end of the day, I've actually come to really appreciate it because I find myself sitting in the front of the class. I find myself able to say what's true for me, even though I know it's not going to be popular for other people. And I come out of here with actually a much stronger foundation. Mm -hmm. Right. So again, it's sort of the challenge version of education that if we aren't challenged, uh, we don't learn anything new. Uh, but it's a, again, structured way of giving folks that challenge. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not going to push you off the cliff. That's even a quote from your your article of students wobble, but in doing so openly and in a space that is self-consciously inviting of curious encounter, they can feel at least somewhat confident that they won't fall down. I mean, I think that's beautifully written because we live in a culture that avoids conflict and avoids that uncomfortable wobble. So how can we go towards it or even run towards the fire of conflict to be able to create peace and, and unity between people? You get curious. Mm. Your curiosity will overcome your sense of danger. Which is why you know toddlers want to run all over the place and fall over the edge. Right. Uh, you have an innate sense of curiosity. You know, we tend to train it out of you by the time you hit young adulthood, uh, reasonably well. I'm hoping to reinstill that through this mm -hmm. because it's incredibly powerful. If you get curious about something, you will pursue it. And so one thing essential partners does when they go into deeply divided communities who actually say they don't want to talk. Um, they were working with guns in Western Massachusetts. And when they first got there, um, they were invited sort of by one side of the issue. And they went and reached out to folks on the other side. And the other side said, no, we don't want to talk to those people. They're wrong. But then they started with an interview process, asking questions about, well, what would you want to know about why people hold those beliefs? And what do you want those people to know about you? And by the end of that interview process, everybody wanted to be in the room together because they realized they actually did want to know, right? So you can think about that person from whom you're polarized. Maybe it's somebody on the other end of a political issue or some crazy thing that's happened in your family or your work colleagues. If you start asking yourself questions about 
what do I want to say to them? So where am I curious in my own positioning? And what is it I actually want to know about how they came to this thing? Mm. The more you think about that, for most people, the more curious you actually get about it. And you find yourself maybe wanting to have that conversation. Right. Yeah, and that's just really powerful oh, it thing. is. Curiosity is something we don't even necessarily think about, um, but we need it. Who trained you to be curious? Like, right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, it's one of those things we don't teach, we presume is inherent in people sometimes. Right. Um, I think we lean on it a lot, but this surfaces it as a value. And that, I think, is something else that's been really valuable for my students. They realize they have this really powerful force within them. If they name it and tap into it, they can do amazing things. Mm -hmm. Well, I think in conclusion, I just want to ask you the final question that we ask a lot of the leaders, and it's just an advice question. What would you go back and tell your 20, 21-year-old self in regards to leadership, life, whatever it is, what advice would you go and, and give back to, to the younger generation? So it's actually advice I think I gave to another friend at about that age. If you do anything well enough, you can save the world. Hmm. Your job at 20 is to figure out what you do well. Um, I am now in a field doing research on this stuff that isn't my home field. I'm an anthropologist of religion. I'm now doing education research. But this method has allowed me to do something really well and something I want to share with people. So I'm leaning into it. That's awesome. Yeah, and that's the same advice I would give to anybody. Figure out what you're good at, even if it's not something that would classically be world-saving. You know, you don't have to go overseas. You don't mm. have to, you know, found a nonprofit. You have to do what you do really well and share your talents. And I think a lot of that starts with being curious and listening to people, like we've talked about this whole time. But, well, Dr. Simple, thank you so much for, for being on and being with us and sharing your heart and being willing to share with us. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.